0: hey welcome to peach pot a georgia politics podcast i'm your host megan payne and joining me today is kyle hayes hey kyle welcome to the show
1: hey i'm excited to have you in the hosting chair
0: i know it's a little weird to be on this side of the mic as our longtime listeners know, Kyle usually hosts, but he has been the journalism guru this week, meaning he gets to take the lead on our topics this episode. So thanks for taking the chance on me, Kyle.
1: Yeah, of course. Don't take my job too fast, though.
0: Well, uh, that won't happen. Don't worry about it. On today's episode, we will talk about the impact of Hurricane Michael, especially in Georgia, Kyle's interview with Aisha Yakub about her campaign for state house, and the gulch development in Atlanta and some of the controversies around it. But first, let's check in on some news. On Tuesday, the AP reported that there are over 50,000 voter registrations in limbo due to name-matching issues. Although African-American voters only represent about one-third of Georgia's voters, 70% of registrations in limbo are those of African-Americans. So Kyle, what are your thoughts on that?
1: This is going to add more fuel to the fire to critics who say that Brian Kemp should have resigned his position. Um, He's been under a lot of criticism because he, at least in modern times, is one of the only secretaries of state to run for election to a higher office and maintain his control over Uh, voting procedures in the state. Uh, Listeners may remember that Kathy Cox, she ran for governor while she was Secretary of State. She did not resign as Secretary of State, but she did appoint a deputy to run voter operations for the state while she was running. Um, so, so critics are going to continue to not be happy about this. But I think there was also a little bit of confusion as to whether or not people would still be able to vote if their if their registrations were in limbo. Um, so as far as I can tell, um, and I saw this from Jay Bookman, who's a, a columnist at the AJC, he said that people can still show up to vote if their voter registrations are currently in limbo, but they need to bring their ID Um, and then they can basically correct the name matching issue at the polls. And, you know, democratic groups, uh, and I think, I think uh, groups from both sides of the aisle, but I know Democrats pay close attention to election processes on election day. Um, so, so pay attention to the news for uh, what you can do if your registration does prevent you from voting. Um, you can see about casting a provisional ballot and make sure that, that your vote counts. Um, but, but this certainly is not a good look for Secretary Kemp.
0: It really isn't. And how would one know if their registration is in limbo?
1: I think that they would know by checking the status of their voter registration on the Secretary of State's website. Uh, But from what I could tell just from chatter on Twitter today is that the state is not actively notifying you if your registration is on hold because of this. So so I think that this adds yet another thing to the list for Democrats who uh, want to try to make voting easier in the state. Another thing that uh, the state probably should be doing is notifying people when their registrations don't match. Um, and and probably doing away with this exact match system for collecting registrations.
0: I definitely agree with that. And it's definitely fuel to the fire, as you were saying, uh, for those who are asking Kemp to step down. The next topic for a little bit of news is that Brian Kemp actually talked to Kyle about his proposals for a cap on state spending and big increases in teacher pay. And so those proposals kind of maybe don't fit together, at least from what I remember. Kyle, what w- what did Brian Kemp say to you? How did you find him?
1: Yeah, so I uh, went when I was in Atlanta last week, um, to do a little peach pod work. I went down to Perry to cover a leg of Brian Kemp's bus tour. And we had a little media scrum to the side after he spoke to people in Perry. And I asked him, how his proposals for a cap on state spending and a big increase in spending, about $600 million in spending on teacher pay raises, how all of that would fit together. And here's what Brian told me.
2: Well, the reason I said we needed the spending cap to start with is because we're in good times like we're now, we're getting incredible revenue growth. So the, the proposals that we're talking about spending money on, the teacher pay raise, the, the hospital tax credit, and other things that we've proposed, are all built into existing revenues that we have. So we're we have not we're not just saying, like Stacy Abrams is, she's got, you know, there's a pot of money out there to do some things with, and she's promising it to everybody three or four times. That, that doesn't add up when you really do the math. Unfortunately, a lot of the press is not doing the math on that. But our proposals, we'd look to see how we can pay for it, how we can also implement the spending cap, and also uh, do the tax cut as planned for next year, and that's exactly what we're gonna gonna do. You gotta remember, you know, last year, the legislature, they fully funded the education formula for the first time ever. They're not gonna have to do that again. It's already built into the existing budget. Um, They also funded $361 million to the teacher's retirement fund. Uh, They're not going to have to do that. If they have to do it again, it won't be that that big of a number. So we've accounted for all those type things.
1: So Kemp basically tells me that they've accounted for all of this new spending and can still do the spending cap with the tax cut. And as you heard, he noted that. The legislature fully funded QBE previously, along with funding for the teacher retirement formula. So he says that's something that they won't have to do again. But typically what we find with the budget is that it's usually constrained by automatic increases in spending that occur each year. So for instance, spending on education goes up because the number of students in our school system goes up. We are a growing state. And healthcare costs go up each year, which increases the, the money that we put into Medicaid. Specific to the education funding formula, though, you know, previously, the f- the legislature was not fully funding the formula. And now they have decided to do that. And Kemp has committed to keeping that going. But if you compare it to what would have been funded under a formula funded at say like 90% versus 100%. You're still as you add more students into that system, you still got to bump up the funding a little bit to keep up with fully funding that QBE amount. And so both of these are going to be constraints on him and his ability to do that. He hit the media for not doing the math on Stacey Abrams proposal. But I think this is a place where we would like to see math from both candidates on this. But I think that this is increasingly an issue that we have with both Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. Uh, Stacey Abrams recently reversed her position on rolling back last year's tax cuts that passed the legislature. Um, she originally told us on Peach Pod that she wanted to roll those tax cuts back. She told us that in March. And now she is saying that she does not want to do that. Um, both her and Kemp sort of fall back pretty frequently on reviewing state tax expenditures, state tax credits. Um, as a way to fund their proposals. But this is sort of a proposal that's kind of a black box. Nobody knows exactly how many of these incentives would be cut, or how much revenue you would get out of these things. And because they are all special interest tax breaks, neither Abrams nor Kemp are really being very straightforward about which ones they will cut and which ones they won't. Because there are people who benefit from some of these tax incentives, and they would be very unhappy to see them cut. You know, I think that that we're going to need a little more detail out of both of these candidates for how all of these pieces of their budget math, how, how this whole puzzle fits together. But if they haven't figured that out on their own, they're going to have a really rude awakening when one of them gets uh, into the governor's mansion and starts trying to make a budget for next year.
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty funny that Kemp is talking about journalists and, you know, the rest of us not doing the math when he's not really provided the numbers to do it. And I'm not convinced, as you were alluding to a second ago, I'm not convinced they've done it themselves, at least not accurately.
1: Yeah, I mean, I that'll that'll be left to be seen. Because You know, they they can get away with not doing the math right now, but the governor has to issue a balanced budget to the legislature and uh, whoever it is is going to have to do that next year. Um, So they're going to have to make the math work then. And and we may find out after the election uh, what these proposals are actually going to look like.
0: I do not envy the people that are crunching those numbers. So moving on to our bigger news items. After making landfall in Florida, Hurricane Michael entered Georgia as a Category 3 storm on Wednesday. It was the strongest storm to hit the state since 1898. That's with an 18 in front of it. (laughs) On Thursday, Governor Deal urged patience as emergency crews worked to clear debris debris and restore power to 450,000 people. But early signs of the devastation showed the storm may have hit Georgia farmers hardest. Here is what Agriculture Commissioner Gary Black told the media Thursday morning.
2: It is our worst dreams I believe are are being realized. I have seen in pictures this morning of cotton that was being harvested yesterday. Uh, It was an outstanding yield of three bales an acre. And Today where the farmer stopped uh, this morning, you cannot tell where he stopped harvest and where the rest of it was harvested by the storm. Uh, So we're working with our federal partners. There's going to be a lot of work to do in that regard. Some pecan uh, affected areas from last year are have somewhat escaped a a little bit, but then there are others that uh, we're we're still not even having communication with them yet.
0: As Gary Black was saying, and as I heard on NPR this morning, Georgia agriculture might be in a bit of trouble from this storm, maybe more than a bit of trouble. It sounds like we're headed into some tough times with um, how badly everything was hit, especially in South Georgia. So Kemp and Abrams have also um, started talking a little bit about the storm damage Kyle, what were your thoughts on what they said?
1: Um so so they haven't um they they have kind of been cautious about about what they've said so far just words of support for people impacted by the hurricane. It's it's interesting for this to hit Georgia at this time in the campaign season and it it sort of gives Georgia the October surprise that you typically find in Florida politics, which is hurricane politics. And politics are not the most important thing about this. So so before we get into that, um it's important to say That our thoughts are with people in South Georgia, that this was a a hugely devastating storm that just obliterated the panhandle in Florida, and was really unique in crossing over the state line coming really far inland as, as still a really powerful hurricane. But there's a lot of, I think, open questions about the politics of this and how this will work out. Um, Governor Deal said that President Trump will be touring damage in Florida, and is likely to also come and tour some damage in Georgia. So it'll be interesting to see if Governor Deal invites Secretary Kemp to tour damage with him. If he would do that, if he would also invite Leader Abrams to also do that, you know, these, you know, hurricanes, are this sort of moment for a very visual kind of leadership from a governor. And if you ever see any kind of Floridian running for higher office, they always talk about how they you know, were there and showed a lot of leadership during a difficult time like a hurricane. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out here. Yeah, I know
0: we'd like to say that politics end up being sec- secondary, especially in a time of crisis, but I actually think that this is maybe not useful in a governor's race like this, but um, certainly telling how Kemp and Abrams will handle themselves if a hurricane like this comes while they're in office. One of the questions that has to be asked is, will there be damaged precincts in southwest Georgia? And will they be repaired or will new precincts be found in time for the election? And so that's going to be a pretty big issue. We've already discussed voter suppression on this episode. But if these precincts are not repaired or new ones found, we may be looking at a completely different type of voter suppression because of storm politics.
1: Yeah, I I think, you know, I don't think the damage reports are detailed enough at this point, but but one of the counties that was impacted by this storm was Randolph County, which we talked about before. They made this effort to close precincts in their counties. Counties often complain about how expensive precincts are to run, particularly in low turnout areas or for lower turnout elections. Um, This really doesn't seem like it'll be a low turnout election if the enthusiasm generated by these two candidates lasts through November, which is now not very far away. Um, And so if these precincts are damaged, and, um, and the counties who run these elections need to find new places to hold these, these elections, are they going to be able to do so? Are they going to have the funds necessary? Will Governor Deal find any emergency funding to help counties that may fall short? This is another issue um, that we'll just have to keep keep an eye on. And the one way I think that this matters, not only or that this matters to both candidates is voters that are that both candidates are trying to reach out to are impacted by this storm. Um, so this storm ravaged rural Georgia. It ravaged farmers in rural Georgia and Kemp has over and over again said that he wanted to be a governor for all of Georgia um, and and pay particular attention to those rural areas in the state. But counties in southwest Georgia are also, many of them are predominantly African American. And in instances like these, where you have recovery from natural disasters, it's often the the people with the lowest incomes and um, communities that are often overlooked that suffer the most from these storms. And so not only would it not only would a similar storm be a leadership test for Kemp or Abram should one of them become the state's next governor, but right now, what they do in terms of outreaching to voters that they are already trying to talk to may be a measure of of their leadership on this issue.
0: All of these discussions um just. Bring up the question of what kind of assistance um, proposals could come from our gubernatorial candidates Kemp and Abrams. Do we think they're going to propose something? Because the information that we got from Gary Black looks pretty grim. So, what do we think we're going to see on the campaign trails from that?
1: Yeah. So, so Gary Black um, said. As we heard in the beginning, that that this is some of the worst nightmares coming true for farmers in, in rural Georgia. He talked in a press conference today about a cotton farm in southwest Georgia where the the storm blew all the cotton off the plants to the point that they couldn't see where the farmers stopped picking the cotton and the storm took over in ripping it all off the plants. Um, Pecan farmers have also suffered two years in a row. They suffered hurricane damage last year. And while they may have dodged a big bullet this year, um, it's still kind of unclear what the damage reports are on that. Um, And all of this builds on, particularly for pecan farmers, it builds on Trump's trade disputes with China, which left pecan farmers wondering if they were going to have access to markets in China the way that they have in the past, because of how Trump has handled Chinese trade issues during his tenure. Um, and so I, I do think that this raises important questions for either Stacey Abrams or Brian Kemp. You know, Stacey Abrams has talked about government being a force for good. And this is sort of the exact kind of circumstance where maybe only the government can be a backstop and bail out uh, farmers who may have lost, you know, much of their livelihood here. Uh, but Brian Kemp is also focused on, on rural Georgia voters. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see, you know, I reached out to both campaigns today to ask if they had any plans to tour storm damage or to come up with any specific proposals for assistance here. And so we'll either edit this in or, or, or post about it later if we get a response from those campaigns. But, but this may be an issue where, where maybe the state is, is, is who needs to jump in because people, people affected by the storm seem to have lost quite a lot.
0: Right. And we don't necessarily want to just assume that federal um, assistance is going to be enough. I really do think that, especially since Georgia is such an agriculturally focused state, that we are going to need local state intervention. And so I would be interested to see what each of these candidates will do. So we will stay tuned.
1: It could even be something as simple as getting help with navigating federal assistance. I I saw old press reports today from Hurricane Harvey in Texas last year where um, in the rebuilding, people have struggled to just access federal aid to jump through all the hoops that are required to do that. And so for one of these candidates who, who wants to even just do sort of a good constituent service, um, getting some assistance in accessing federal aid, helping people understand what those options are and how they do it, Um, that may be an important component of this this as well.
0: Kyle for governor, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, but really, I do think that each of our candidates, if they happen to listen to this, would be wise to consider that bit. They don't have to actually reinvent the wheel. They can just provide assistance, which would be very helpful at this time. So Kyle, you talked to Aisha Yacoub, while you were in Atlanta last week. Can you tell us a little bit about your conversation and then we'll share it?
1: Yeah, so Aisha Yacoub is running for State House in House District 97. And this is up in the Duluth area in Gwinnett County. And we uh, talked about her background working for an organization that fights for immigrant rights at the Capitol, she's somebody who knows her way around policy really well, really understands how how policy and activism at the Capitol work. Um, longtime listeners may remember that before she decided to run for office and, and after she spent one of her several sessions at the Gold Dome lobbying on immigrant issues. We talked to her and Grace Starling about how to be an activist at the Gold Dome and what that experience is like. And so I've said publicly before that I am not unbiased about Aisha Yacoub. I'm very excited about her campaign, and I'm very happy that she's running. And so we are really excited to share this conversation with you. Um, So here I am with Aisha. All right, so we're now joined by Aisha Yacoub. She's the Democratic candidate in House District 97. Aisha, thank you for joining us
3: Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me back on.
1: Um, So let's start with just kind of the most important question for any candidate, which is why do you want to be the next representative for House District 97?
3: So I have lived in District 97 for most of my life. Um, I grew up here and went to school here. um, And uh, throughout that time, I only had one representative, and that was Representative Brooks Coleman. And this year, he decided to retire. And um, we really didn't have any strong Democratic candidate that was stepping up to run Um, so I I looked at the options I I decided to run because I realized that it was either do what I've been doing for the last couple of years and doing the advocacy work and getting people out to vote and and doing the work behind the scenes or step up and put my money where my mouth is and actually run for the seat Uh, a lot of my work in the last couple of years has been about getting people to step up and do the job Uh, and so it was my turn to do that
1: Um, So you've been pretty active in Georgia policy circles for a while, Mm -hmm. advocating for immigrant rights of the Gold Dome. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background and the kind of work you were doing before you jumped into this race?
3: Yeah, so um, I started off in a very community organizing space, um, literally registering voters before the 2016 election and making sure that communities that don't usually uh, get involved in politics were having an opportunity to learn and educate themselves about politics and the importance of uh, local and state elections elections. After that, uh, I joined an organization um, for which I was their policy director and served as a lobbyist at our state capitol. So we've spoken before about uh, my advocacy around immigrant issues and literally fighting back every single anti-immigrant bill that gets introduced year after year at our Mm capitol. And um, you know, this year was a tough one for all of us. We fought back a, a really horrendous bill. And at the end of it, I was just glad that I had taken the next step to run for a seat because I realized how important it is to have people like myself and people that represent different backgrounds at the Capitol to speak on behalf of these issues.
1: Since you've done so much work in immigrant rights, and and you've talked about beating back bad bills, Mm -hmm. what is an agenda for immigrant rights, a positive agenda for immigrant rights look like at the Gold Dome? And how can the state improve on, on some of these policies?
3: Yeah, so a lot of the things that I want to work on are around access. And so, uh, right now in the state of Georgia we have a growing immigrant population especially if you look at Gwinnett County Gwinnett County has the largest immigrant largest growing immigrant population of any county in the southeast when you look at the kinds of things that people need they aren't necessarily any different than the kinds of things that other communities need but what tends to happen is a lack of access for people so one of the things that i'd like to do is work on language access opportunities for uh, health services safety services educational services making sure that families and students have opportunities to access things that they might need in their own language Um, And another thing that I'm really passionate about is education, and we've seen in the state of Georgia time and time again that in-state tuition has been denied to undocumented students, Um, and I would like to see that changed. I would like to make it so that any student um, that has gone to school in Georgia, that has lived in Georgia, has the opportunity to access that in-state tuition um, for any state school here. And then, lastly, I just I would like to see um, an end to all of this hate. And I know that's not a positive thing. It's actually just a, a statement that we're not going to continue to vilify our immigrant communities here. It's simply I would like to see an end to English only and other legislation that gets introduced time and time again.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so you've also noted a passion for working for people with disabilities. Um, what does a disability rights agenda at the Gold Dome look like?
3: Yeah, so um, my work before getting into um, advocacy and you know voter engagement work was really with students with disabilities. I worked for many years um, at the University of Georgia with their Disability Services Department, and then as well as Gwinnett Tech um, doing the same work. And one of the things that I got to learn about there was this idea of post secondary inclusive education, which is this concept where we allow people with disabilities, with developmental disabilities specifically, to be able to be part of a college atmosphere. There are not very many colleges around the nation that even offer this, but I think Georgia has the the unique opportunity to provide that because we have programs that have been tried and and tested. This just means simply making it more accessible for people who want to be in a college environment and learn from their peers um, and be able to access opportunities for gainful employment after college. That's one of the things that I'd like to work towards. Um, but the other thing is just like a, a very real thing that has impacted my family is access to paratransit. We live in Gwinnett County right now. And um, although we have Gwinnett Transit, our paratransit system does not support the full host of people that need it. Um, my sister has very rarely been able to use paratransit because we live too far outside of the of the bus route, and so she isn't able to access it as much as she needs, as is the case with a lot of other people. So um, I will, as we increase uh, access to MARTA, as we uh, expand MARTA access, I want to make sure that paratransit is uh, going in that direction as well. And then lastly, just being able to provide more opportunities for employment and equal pay. I think a lot of people assume that the wage gap is limited to, uh, you know, different ethnicities and different genders, but also if you look at the wage gap in terms of people with disabilities, it's also a very stark difference between um, men who have disabilities versus men who don't have disabilities women that have disabilities versus women that have that don't have disabilities so um, also addressing issues around that
1: so on, on Marta and public transit generally you've you've noted your support for expanded public transit options here in the district um, but this is an issue that seems like it's really kind of been stuck in the mud for years so what experience do you bring to actually get? Funding and community buy in to make some of these bigger transit investments?
3: I think right now, where we stand in Gwinnett, as I'm sure you've heard, we had the opportunity to have Gwinnett, to have MARTA on our ballot this year in Gwinnett. And uh, because of some decisions by our commissioners, that vote got delayed until March. And so that means that we have to get all of our communities out to vote again. Uh, in March, in the middle of session, um, to make sure that we get that option to bring MARTA to Gwinnett. So I think my experience first lies right there, making sure that we're doing that education and getting folks out to vote. To at least get Marta and Gwinnett first, um, I think the next step would be to make sure that we are working with communities to hear where they want Marta, um, what kinds of solutions would they need immediately, versus what solutions would be necessary in the long term. Um, I think a lot of people in my district, especially, are concerned about the where. You know, our district and our county has grown so much over the last ten years, and so for people to even envision having Marta, it's it's all a question of where are you going to put it? Are you going to you know, run it through my neighborhood? Are you going to run it through my kids' school? Um, So it's all about making sure that the community understands that as we're working towards these solutions, it's not going to be a decision that's being made just by our legislators. It has to be a community. uh, The community has to have an input in that process, and I'd love to see that actually happen.
1: What did you think of that uh, delay of the MARTA vote to March? Do you you think that was had political motivations or motivations related to MARTA policy? What, what did you think of
3: that? I honestly think it was a political decision. The commission itself has two, uh, can't, two commissioners that are up for re-election, and they're both scared that they might lose their seats this year. And they understand how important MARTA is for a lot of their constituents and how likely it was that the MARTA vote would drive up voter turnout. And so I really think it was a political decision. I also know that a lot of our current state legislators got involved in that decision because they also realized how tricky it would be for them and their seats. And so um, although it was a very disturbing decision on their part, I don't think that's going to keep us from doing what we can to make sure we get that turnout again in March.
1: Um, So you've said that you want to be a voice for women of color in Georgia politics. And if you won, you'd join Sheikh Rahman as the first two Muslims in the Georgia legislature. I found over and over again in conversations doing this podcast in the last few years that people really value representation in their politics. Are you finding that same desire on the trail? And how would you work to represent women of color and Muslims in the guldum?
3: Yeah. um, And if you look at my district, you can see... District 97 is over 25% Asian American. So that by itself is just fact that people are, are ready, right? The the district has changed so much. We've been represented by the same person for so long. And at this time, people are ready for that change. Now, whether or not that change means someone like me is a different question. Um, I'm not seeing overwhelming anger or overwhelming um, confusion about who I am. But I think it takes a little bit more on my part to educate people about what I bring to the table necessarily and, um, you know, why they need to vote for me. I think people are ready for that change. They're ready for more representation. But... Um, I do think that to see a to see someone who's running for office that is visibly Muslim, that is uh, visibly younger, (laughs) is still a little bit of a challenge for people. And so a lot of the work that I've had to do to introduce myself to voters is simply about showing them my connections back to the district. Explaining to them that I went to school where their kids went to school or I went to college where they probably went to college and that I've lived here for my almost my entire life. I think going beyond the representation, I think people are ready to elect a woman for the first time in this district. And then, you know, talking to the people of color in this district, I think they're just fed up. They're fed up with, um, you know, the party that has uh, time and time again, come to vilify them and other immigrant communities. I will say that um, even though my district is 25% Asian American, that population doesn't always vote. And so it's been a big part of my work to make sure that we're talking to those low propensity voters and making sure that it's not just a number, it's actually a group of people that are turning out to vote this year.
1: And are there lessons from running for this office that you feel like you've learned that you could give to other younger candidates of color? I know that we've seen kind of a surge of women running for office mm-hmm. where in previous years they may not have run because they felt they weren't qualified or felt that they um, you know, would be mistreated on the trail. So was this harder than you thought and, and what lessons do you draw from it?
3: Well, I, I say this all the time, but had it not been for Stacey Abrams running at the top of the ticket, I don't think I would have run this year. I, Even though I have been involved in politics for the last couple of years, I've, I've worked directly with a lot of our legislators, it still seemed a, a little bit of a foreign concept to me to run for office. But seeing uh, Stacey Abrams run for governor and run for the highest seat in the state kind of gave me that confidence that, okay, if if the state is ready to elect the first black woman as governor, I think the state would be ready to elect their first Muslim um, state representative. And so um, that was a big thing for me. Um, I think looking back, if I would change something, I would have started earlier. Um, I I would have started campaigning earlier and really getting my bio and my introduction message out there to the voters a lot earlier. I think I focused a lot on my issues at the very beginning. And what I'm learning now is, um, you know, my issues are important. People care about the same things I care about. But at the end of the day, it's just making that connection to voters. And when you're looking at a small state house seat, you don't have to worry about all of the the politics that go into the governor's race or the presidential race. It's it's really about how can you connect to voters in a way that they're not connecting with the other candidate. Um, and I haven't seen my candidate connecting with them in that my opponent connecting with them in that way. And so that was that's the big thing that I would would say to people is spend a lot of time making those connections before you even dive into the issues because you can disagree on issues, but if people like who you are, if people like what you stand for, if people like and can relate to you, it's, it's an easier sell, even if you disagree on fundamental issues. And I've seen that talking to people at their door, I've seen that when I meet people at the grocery store, um, to be true.
1: Well, let's finish up with two of the biggest budget items for the legislature, education and healthcare. Um, so what is your vision for K-12 education in the state? <laughs>
3: So I always talk about education as my main platform issue because as um, a graduate of the Gwinnett County Public Schools, I know um, how much people in my district value public education. A lot of people have actually moved to my district specifically because of the public schools here. And I think that's the case for a lot of for a lot of communities in our area. And um, I have a very particular um, desire to make sure that we are improving public education across the state, not just in Gwinnett County. Um, Some of my platform issues around that include updating the QBE formula to include things like wraparound services. It's not something that uh, gets talked about um, enough, but we can't fully say that we're funding public schools unless we're providing opportunities for mental health services and after school opportunities for students in schools that really need them. Um, So that's one of the things is updating the formula and then fully funding the schools. The other thing that I would do is make sure that we're providing universal pre-k options. I was actually able to benefit from pre-k when I was growing up and I have definitely seen the impact of that in my life and in the life of all the people that I know that we're able to go to pre-K. And then the last thing is actually making sure that we're increasing teacher pay and um, keeping the best teachers that we have. I wouldn't be here right now if I didn't have amazing teachers that helped me learn about things like government and public speaking and um, just giving me that confidence in myself. And so as we continue to invest in education, we have to invest in our teachers and make sure that we continue to keep the great teachers that we already have.
1: And if Stacey Abrams was to become the state's next governor, she's pledged to to do a big push to reform the state's education funding formula. And she often talks about this issue as an issue of political will, where it's one where the policies are out there, people understand what the options mm-hmm. are. It's it's the will to get it done. Um, You would be replacing Brooks Coleman in the legislature, who was a longtime chairman of the House Education Committee. Um, So is that conversation around reforming the funding formula something you'd like to be involved in, like on a study committee or formally involved?
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think a lot of uh, what my experience brings is simply that I was in public schools a lot. More recently than a lot of people making those decisions. So I actually can remember times where we didn't have the funding to do the things that we needed to do. We had great teachers, but some of our teachers had to leave um, because they couldn't make ends meet. And so I would love to be part of those decisions. And I really appreciate the work that Representative Coleman has done for public education and has supported teachers, but I think we need to take it to the next step and look beyond just the great schools we have in the metro area and make sure that we're investing in schools across the state so that we can keep retaining teachers and students across the state in um, the areas that need them the most.
1: And on healthcare, you've said that you support Medicaid expansion um, like a lot of Democrats on the ballot this year, that that's an issue that's really divided Democrats and Republicans pretty starkly. Um, but you've also said that you support a public option for health care in the state. So can you describe what that public option is that you envision?
3: So one of the things that um, my family has noticed and a lot of my friends and family have noticed uh, over the last couple of years is how hard it is to find um, the right insurance provider. Uh, in my household right now, um, we have five different insurance plans uh, because uh, of our different work situations and because of our different um, access to healthcare, because of pre existing conditions. And um, my parents also ask why there isn't an easier option. And so I've always th- thought about the idea of a public healthcare option to make it easier for people. My my sister and a lot of my family that have disabilities have been able to benefit from pub- from public health programs. And it is just so much easier than having to deal with the private insurance industry, having to deal with um, the, the health care exchange, and especially how, how much it's changed over the last couple of years.
1: And then is there anything else you want to hit on before we go today?
3: I think that the one thing that I always have to tell people is um, when they look at my race not to discount my district uh, right away, it is a hard seat that I'm fighting for. It has been held by the Republican Party for so long. The district has changed so much, and people haven't seen that. Um, People haven't seen the changing demographic because they haven't showed up to vote. They haven't been involved in the political um, environment for so long, but we have an opportunity to change that this year. We saw a A crazy increase in turnout this year for the very first time because we had Asian American candidates for our congressional seats, because we had Asian American candidates for my race, even. I was running against a Taiwanese American and a Sri Lankan American um, in my primary, in, in the Republican primary. And we saw directly how important it is to have candidates that reflect the community on the ballot and how that relates to voter turnout. And so I am trying really hard this year to make sure that I'm reaching those low propensity voters and voters that that usually um, get discounted by Republican and Democratic campaigns, um, because I realize how important it is in flipping the seat.
1: Um, So if people would like to learn more about your campaign, how can they do that?
3: Um, They can visit my website at www.voteaisha.com or find me on any social media platform at Aisha for Georgia.
1: All right. Well, Aisha, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank
0: you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Kyle. It sounds like she has a great shot and is going to be a great candidate. So I look forward to watching that race and seeing how it goes on November 6th.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and the Atlanta City Council are currently considering a development proposal that would create a mini city in the Gulch, a large hole in the ground near the Mercedes Benz Stadium. But the deal has run into resistance from some of the council and activist groups who say that the deal is a giveaway to developers and that it gets little in return for residents of the city. Council may actually vote on the deal next week. So let's talk a little bit about that. First, let's kind of define the Gulch. For those who haven't been in the Atlanta area, The Gulch is actually a pretty happening tailgate spot um, for some of the games that happen in the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. But otherwise, it's just a desolate parking lot. Um, Kyle, have you been down there?
1: No, I've never been. I've uh, never gotten to tailgate there, but I have uh, walked into Phillips Arena to see the Hawks. And yeah, you notice this just kind of like giant hole in the ground under the MLK bridge right there. Um, and so, and so this is a piece of property that, um, despite how fun it is for tailgaters, uh, a lot of people in Atlanta want to see it developed.
0: Yeah. And I can see that. Um, I personally have, you know, I live in Atlanta, so I have mixed feelings on it. I will say that when the gulch is not being used for tailgating, it looks pretty bad and it's not necessarily somewhere you want to be when it's dark and you're alone. So the proposal for the Gulch is actually bringing in a California-based developer, and they're proposing to build up to $5 billion worth of mixed-use development with 2 to 9 million square feet of office space, 2 to 3 million square feet of retail and residential space. And it would create a 12 to 15 15 block mini-community on the Gulch property. The city of Atlanta would allow up to... $1.75 billion of tax revenue generated by the development to go back to developers to pay for 40% of the project's total construction costs. If developed without incentives, that future tax money would have gone to the city and the state. But the property currently generates almost no tax revenue, and supporters argue that the property won't be redeveloped without incentives. So Atlanta's kind of in a tight spot. It does seem like a really, you know, on paper from a numbers perspective, it seems like a good deal, as far as opposed to not having a good deal, because it would actually bring in revenue. Because right now, I do agree that having it redeveloped without incentives, is just not a possibility. What do you think about that, Kyle?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think this is actually the core question for people on opposite sides of this issue. Um, So activists who have been protesting the deal. They are really frustrated that this deal does not come with a community benefits agreement, uh, which is an agreement between the developer and community organizations that legally binds developers to providing benefits that that they typically say they will provide. It's It's not uncommon during these sorts of development deals for developers to say that they'll include some perks for the city. Um, Here, they're saying that they'll include $42 million in affordable housing and other housing incentives, a job training program, requirements for minority and women-owned businesses on the developed property, and money for the city to build a new fire station. But, But the key thing here, particularly for people who oppose this deal, is that none of that is legally mandated. And even the affordable housing requirements The developer can basically develop the property, not follow through on the affordable housing requirements, and then basically sort of pay off the city the balance of that. To, to avoid having some sort of problem with the city from a, from a legal perspective. Um, and, and the opponents of the deal are basically saying that this is not good enough, that none of it is legally binding, and that the benefits that are a part of this aren't nearly enough for the benefit that the city and taxpayers in the city are giving the developer by funding by basically refunding 40% of construction costs. And they have been a really aggressive voice in trying to oppose this deal. Uh, But they are up against uh, really the political machinery of City Hall, which usually tends to favor developers. um, And they are, um, are are fighting back right now to keep this deal from happening.
0: So supporters of the deal say that the deal with the developer is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and the developer is buying the bonds. So if they don't build something that generates tax revenue, they can't get their money back. This land would not be developed without some sort of public financing because you need to build a $500 million platform to bring everything to street level. And private developers won't do it when they can build somewhere else, so that's another perk of the deal. Also, the city's not fronting money for the development but they're allowing some of the tax revenue gathered by development to help fund its costs. So that makes it a little bit easier on the city. And along with the community benefits you were talking about, Kyle, the deal has about $42 million for affordable housing and other housing incentives. And the deal with the developer goes beyond affordable housing requirements in city law. It's actually the best affordable housing deal the city has gotten on a mixed-use development. And as you mentioned, the job training program... Is a pretty wonderful perk, as well as minority and women-owned businesses um, on the developed property is great as well. Plus, the city definitely could use another fire station because Atlanta is pretty huge. In my opinion, the core issue that this gets at is the massive issue with gentrification in Atlanta and the surrounding areas. And this is gentrification is something that comes up that any time development occurs in Atlanta, because affordable housing either seems to fall through or isn't actually affordable or just doesn't work. And what ends up happening is anytime you develop in an area that's considered blighted or underused or something like the Gulch, what you end up doing is running off everyone that already lives there or lives around there because property values skyrocket. And even if they already own it, they can't pay the taxes. And so this is something that is just kind of near and dear to me. Being an Atlanta resident, trying to keep in mind like when I purchase something, where I purchase something, I need to be judicious about it and not go buy something that is supporting changing a neighborhood completely and running out the residents that have been there for a long time. And we could see that happen. The gulch itself is not populated, but the areas around it, you know, there are homes and things. And every time you develop, property values do end up going up. And so tax bills go up as well and the state is not always going to make exceptions.
1: Yeah, the interesting the thing that I saw about that is like I think that there is this sort of like baseline problem about what you do about gentrification and it's a it's a problem in a lot of cities like Atlanta's not unique there. You know, I live in DC and my rent compared to what I tell people back home that I pay is absurd. And it's sort of the core of that issue is that there just is not enough housing and so there's this question for city governments about how do you solve this problem? Do you come up with this big expansive affordable housing program where the city either like builds houses or pays developers to build houses and and does this sort of in an isolated sense where you know we're going to find a plot of land, we're going to put affordable housing there. That's what's going to go there. Or do you do what Maybe seems like probably the only option left in Atlanta, particularly maybe with this this deal with the Gulch, is do you fight every real estate deal that goes on to say every new building that pops up should have 10% affordable units or 20% affordable units? And then there's this tension about how you define affordable. Is it affordable to a a pretty well-off workforce that is coming into the city to do some of these jobs? Or is it affordable to people who make maybe only a third of the median income, something like ten or $15,000 in an area like Atlanta? Those are two sort of different questions. But how you sort of do that in the context of the fact that we are not starting from scratch. We have a city, we have a very big, large, sprawling city in Atlanta. Um, and we, at least I feel like we've sort of reached the limits of, you know, people our parents' age, they just went further out from the city to find affordable places to live, cheap houses. You know, my parents got a great deal on a house up in. Eckworth when when we were kids, but it's just not feasible for young people who maybe don't want to be stuck in cars to move out to the burbs and commute an hour and a half into Atlanta. It deals with all of the other planning issues that Atlanta has, and so it's a really wicked problem for the city. What do you think that like voters and young people, people our age, should know about this, and and what should they be doing?
0: I think Atlanta needs to stop and really get together a city plan that includes not just housing, but also transit and also ensuring that there aren't food deserts and all of those things. Because while the Gulch is kind of an exception to the rule, given that it is on transit, which then makes a whole lot of the city and what the city has to offer, like grocery stores and doctor's offices and businesses, those all become accessible to that area. Some of the other development that is occurring in Atlanta that's not the case. And so you can't just put affordable housing anywhere. Um, the Gulch would actually be a great site for affordable housing. But as you previously discussed, Kyle, how do you define it? But just given Atlanta politics and the way gentrification has become such a huge problem here, I really think we have no business developing something like the Gulch, which is going to be huge. And um, potentially set an example for future developments until we kind of take a massive pause and figure out what we need to do for this city in the next five years to make sure that everyone who lives in it has access to everything they need.
1: Yeah. And I also think this gets at a really consistent tension in Georgia politics, which is, do you favor the interests of average people or do you favor the interests of business owners and, um, and wealthy people part of what overhangs this discussion of the Gulch is the relocation of the second Amazon headquarters and governor deal has put pressure on mayor bottoms and the council to try to accept this deal uh, because this may be a potential spot for a campus for the HQ two for Amazon. Um, But then when you look at that, you look at housing and sort of this like little mini community, little mini community being developed for high wage workers at Amazon who are then going to be able to sort of walk from their apartment to maybe downstairs or across the street to a big office building that is the new Amazon HQ2. They would be living on privatized streets because that's another element of this deal that I don't quite understand. And it would be sort of like more in the direction of like the rich keep getting richer kind of thing And so to me, the other sort of thing that overhangs this is is the governor's race and the role for the state here. Stacey Abrams has talked about housing trusts as a way to address the affordable housing issue, but it's challenging because you need coordination between the state government, local governments. When you when you try to piece together the issue of transit and housing, not only do you have the city of Atlanta, but you have counties, various counties in the metro area that are all maybe going to become a part of this new transit un- umbrella under the ATL. And those two issues, housing and transit, are like completely linked because you need housing in good places to access jobs or you need transit to take you from housing that is further away from your job to access jobs. And you're trying to do all of this on a city that is already exists. This is an issue that I think the next governor is going to have to deal with, particularly if giant incentives for Amazon on top of giant incentives for a development that Amazon might end up on. And, it, you know, the, the people who are opposing this deal, I think have a real point about who the benefits are going to. Um, it, it does not feel like The community is getting much out of this. Um, I think think the thing that works against their argument, though, is that this, absent these incentives, this is land that probably wouldn't be developed. And if it's not developed, then it may induce Amazon to go somewhere else and not come to Atlanta. So, like, there's a lot of, like, core tension here. This is why this is such a tough and emotional issue for people, because there are no easy answers here.
0: So... Currently in this process, the deal could come to a vote before the city council as early as October 15th during a regular city council meeting next week. And Mayor, Mayor Bottoms was actually pushing for a vote last month for this deal, but the council complained about how quickly they were being asked to turn around and support the deal. The council also previously rejected a proposal for an independent audit of the Gulch deal that activists wanted. While Governor Deal has been pushing for the council to approve the deal. Kyle, is there anything that we can do? Um, You know, you kind of asked me what people should be aware of. How do we get in touch with city council to make them aware of what we think?
1: Well, we'll post information for the city council in the show notes to this episode. So you can obviously reach out to the council and register your opinion on that. Uh, But I think being more involved in city politics in general, uh, this is something that we could improve on on this show. Uh, I think city politics is a little bit of a black box to me. And, and I knew very little about this before before starting to look into this. But I also think that we need a broader discussion on the affordable housing issue and how all of these pieces of economic mobility fit together. The affordable housing crisis in Atlanta is not going to be won or lost on this Gulch deal alone. But If people are paying attention, if people are engaged on the issue of affordable housing, um, and I hope they are because I would one day like to live in Atlanta and I keep looking at your rents and they keep getting more expensive. They're not that much different than here in D.C. now.
0: Tell me about it.
1: This is an issue not only for people of really modest means, whom we should be looking out for, but for for middle inc- for middle income people, for young people who are trying to live in a place that is not ten bazillion miles from where you work. This is an issue that's going to impact all of us, and if you don't solve this issue on the front end, it will only get worse in the long run. and it, And it's a big piece of economic mobility for for people here in Georgia. So talk to your city council person. Learn who your city council person is um, and pay attention to these elections when they're happening for Atlanta city council people and the mayor and tell them how you feel. Tell them that you want them to solve this problem because it's going to take a lot of effort, a lot of political will to do that.
0: Exactly. And with the Gulch being so high profile, this is the one to act on. Yeah. So I think that brings our episode to a wrap. Kyle, thanks so much for coming on and uh, sharing all of your adventures with us this, from this week.
1: And thank you for hosting the show. did a great job.
0: <laughs> thanks. Thanks for, to everyone for being patient with me. Till next time.
1: We'll talk to you all next week.